I, I arrived at Lakeview Christian Center when I was nine years old. Nine years old with my mom, my older brother. And I walked into, having not grown up in a church like Lakeview, I walked in thinking, this place is weird. Because the church I grew up in, you actually weren't supposed to talk in. And so not only were people talking in there, they were clapping their hands, jumping around, praying. Y'all know Mr. Phil Widener? I saw him. His, uh, he was one of the first people I met. I walked in. I met his son Aaron. Met him. He introduced me to Aaron. I walked back to Children's Church with Aaron. And I, I, watching Mr. Phil in worship is an experience, right? It's really cool. Nine years old, I saw that for the first time. Worship in the church I grew up in was very solemn, sober. You, everything was real quiet, and you had to be self-contemplating and everything. It was weird. It was just like, God doesn't talk to us? Even as a kid, I was thinking that. But walking in, I, I was a little weirded out. But what struck me the most, and this is the coolest thing because this is still characteristic of Lakeview Christian Center. It's still characteristic of Christ Community Church because we, we have Lakeview's DNA in us because of how I grew up there. It was, it was a family. And it was a family that loved one another. It was a family that laughed together. It was a family that you felt, I can, I can be here. At nine years old, I felt that. Eleven years old, sitting in children's church, I prayed to receive Christ. I asked a simple prayer. God, just be sorry for my sins. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Would you come live inside of me? And at that moment, something happened in my heart that completely, re Bible calls it regeneration. It, it, it Something changed. I felt that change and a peace entered my soul in that moment that has never, ever left. Now, I, I got to spend my youth group years at Lakeview as well, and Pastor Keith was my youth pastor. I got, to, I got to seek him out to ask questions about who is God and what's the life that he has for us. Because here's the biggest issue that was when, when I was a teenager and I watched my children walk through it and you walk through it as well. The biggest challenge for your teen years is the very same thing that the devil himself tempted Adam and Eve with in the Garden of Eden. Same thing. The Bible tells us there's nothing new under the sun. The enemy's schemes, his tactics are exactly the same. So the same temptation that y'all have, look, y'all got, got technology. I'm really glad I didn't have that when I was a teenager. I'm really glad that would have, it would have harmed me in a big way. So look, the battle that you have, a little different than what I have, what I had. But listen, the temptation is exactly the same. The temptation is this. And what, what the devil himself came to Eve with, he said, is God really giving you everything he is? Is he, is he worth it? Is he worth it for you to give everything that you are to him? Is he worth it for you? Has he given you everything to satisfy who you are? Because our temptation is, maybe he hasn't. Because more of us, uh, a lot of times, we can be more aware of what we think we have to give up in order to live for God, rather than all that we gain when we do surrender and live for him. Same exact temptation. And every person on this planet faces that temptation. Every person faces that temptation. So listen. I love the, the title of this youth group because we need to be able to see Jesus in greater, more glorious ways than we've ever imagined. Because most of us have a picture of Jesus 
And this is culture's picture of Jesus. Culture's picture of Jesus is that he is a wimp. He just stands around loving people. I call him hippie Jesus. We have this hippie Jesus, you know what I'm talking about? He's got long hair. He's got blue eyes. Jesus did not have blue eyes. He was probably this tall. And he, he was middle brown in skin tone. That's why he, he, does, he didn't draw the attention of everybody around. Like, ooh, look at that dude. Never. Would have not been an influencer in any social media platform. Do you know that Jesus didn't venture out of 20 miles from where he was born in Bethlehem his entire life? Take that back. He did go down to Egypt when he was a baby, but then he came back up. So in his ministry, let's call it that, in his ministry, three and a half years of ministry, he didn't go more than 20 miles from the place that he was born. And yet, he still influences everything. Do you know why? Because Aaron said it last night. Because he rose from the dead. You know why we know the Bible is true? You know why we know that the Christian faith and the way that we, it's presented in Scripture is true? Do you know why? We have confidence in that. And it's not because a bunch of people got around, a bunch of old heads got around and said, hey, let's just make sure that we believe this really well and, and it will influence people and it will capture people up and they'll want to believe it too. See, man didn't get around to try to figure out how to make this thing work so everybody would believe it. You know why this is true? Why the fact that what you're experiencing from the Lord right now is reliable, what you've experienced this week is reliable, what you've experienced this week you know God is building on to build you into the man or woman of God that he wants you to be? Why is it true? Why is the Bible true? Because Jesus rose from the dead. That's why it's all true. Because listen, Jesus said, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. I will be killed, but on the third day I will rise again. He predicted his death, he predicted his resurrection, and he did it. That means that everything he said is true. You know what he thought about the Old Testament? He thought the Old Testament was true. He talked about Adam and Eve as literally to have been created by God. So we can trust in the creation account from Genesis chapter 1. We, he, he talked about Jonah being in the belly of a fish for three days. So we can trust that all the weird miracles of the Bible, they were true. It's true, y'all. So that's why I love the question that Aaron's been asking Tess a few nights. Faced with this knowledge, faced with this understanding, what are we going to do with it? Faced with this knowledge, are we just going to simply live life as if, yeah, that's good for somebody else, but not really for me. What are we going to do with what we've learned? Are we simply going to be just caught up with everybody else in our lives? The, the, the status that we look for within school, within a, a group of friends that we feel like we have to keep up with. And we feel ourselves pressing our, our, our genuine selves, our, our Christ-like selves. We feel that kind of pushing that down so I can promote some false identity to be accepted by the people around me. What will we choose? Look, the same temptation. Is God really going to give me everything? Yeah. When I was in high school, I came across 
the scripture in Matthew chapter 5. It says, Jesus is saying this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. All of us are looking for satisfaction. And the devil wants to convince us that God really doesn't want to satisfy us. He's withholding himself from us. When the devil went to Eve and he said what? Did God really say that? He, and he just calls God a liar. You won't die. Same temptation. But when we are, when we are confronted, not just confronted, when we are blessed with understanding the truth, because of the Holy Spirit that God's given to, for our illumination, for the, the mind's light to be turned on so we can understand. What will we do with it? That's the question I have for where I want us to land is to understand that what we do with it means that we follow Jesus wherever he goes. Now, when Jesus was on the earth in his ministry, people wanted to come. Hey, I'm going to follow you. You know what he said? Birds of the air have nests. Foxes have dens that they go find. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's saying, I don't have a home. How are we supposed to follow somebody that doesn't have a home? He ascended. Remember, he resurrected. He ascended into heaven. And now he is seated at the right hand of God, the scriptures tell us. How are we supposed to follow that? These are like legitimate questions that we need to be asking ourselves. Sometimes we just hyper-spiritualize everything. We just spiritualize it. And we're like, I'm just going to follow Jesus. What do, you, what do you mean? How are you going to follow him? When Jesus was on the earth in his, in his ministry, what he described as following him was not primarily actions to do, but a person to be. Does that make sense? When Jesus said, follow me, he was really saying, imitate me. You follow me by imitating me. You follow me by getting close to me in my presence and, and beholding my glory and have it do, do something in your heart that renovates who you are. God, God does something on the inside of us and then we live it out. That's what Jesus is saying. The, the, this is how you follow me. Live my life. And, and look, it's not a life that we're trying to go get and put on. It's a life that he's put inside of us by the presence of his spirit when by faith we trust him. That's, that's what I felt at 11 years old. When the peace of God came into my heart, I believe it was in that moment that I felt the spirit of God himself. The same spirit that said this, let there be light, lives inside of us. Do we recognize that power? Or we pretend it's not there. Because God wants us to live in that power. And when we surrender to that power, guess what? We begin, to, we, we begin to let the light of Christ and the life of Christ that's on the inside. We live it out through our obedience to him. And that's how we follow him. So look, Jesus talks about actions. And we're supposed to see how he acts toward things and be able to do that. But ultimately, Jesus says, follow me. He's saying this. Let my life that's been deposited on the inside, let it come out. So our battle becomes, how do I do that when everything in me wants to shove it, shove it down because I'm looking at the people around me and I, I, I'm, I'm weird about that and I don't know what to do with it. Look, our culture, remember I said, I, I think our culture has a hippie Jesus in mind and that's what they throw to us. They're throwing this hippie Jesus 
who just only sits around loving people. But I'm glad for this week that we have a different concept of what that is. Because he is a lion. Y'all seen the lion that went through, went through the wardrobe? Uh, Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the movie, when uh, Aslan the lion, he makes the deal with the white witch, and then the white witch questions him, how will I know you will come through on your deal, and what does Aslan do? He roars, and the white witch sits down. I love that for my favorite part of the movie. Because that's exactly what Jesus does all the time. And what we have in Scripture is not a wimpy Jesus. We have a very powerful, a very sovereign, a very, a very in control, having all authority. We have a Jesus that is very masculine, not toxic masculine. That toxic masculinity is bad. What we, what we know Jesus to be is very masculine. Now listen to this. I've been, just in articles that I've been reading, um, on the news, people referring to other people. He's he's such a good human. And the pronoun battle. How we're going to be? How will we be uh, represented? I want to be they them. I don't know if I'm he him, she her. I want to be they them. Uh, how about this at Mother's Day? All your moms would love this. Happy birthing person's day. Listen, the culture is selling us a bill of goods. That, that in, in the desire to find yourself, they're actually trying to talk you into erasing yourself. Rather, rather than recognize what God has created as male and female and the glory of God that's to, attached to each one individually, and when you put them together in marriage, something of glory of God is seen forever and ever throughout all eternity. And the culture, and I believe the devil himself is behind it, is trying to erase that. Let's erase God's creation. It's not male and female. No, it's human. It's not mom and dad. No, it's birthing person and non-birthing person. This culture, this culture is crazy. And listen, that's the culture that we're in right now. That's what Aaron's been talking about. Is this the culture that we're just going to stand back and look when it's like, you got no clue. Truth is, no, God is good. We're not be, we're not ugly about it. That's a boy, all right? It's a boy. Period. We're not ugly about it. But we find moments and we're ready for moments where God puts us in situations where we're able to say, hey, you know what? Even to a person who's struggling with gender identity, you know, this is this is interesting to think about. Uh, gender dysphoria, somebody trying to figure out who they are, whether male or female. Do you know that has replaced anorexia in young girls as the number one battle? It's all about image. Who am I? But if we're not going to Jesus, finding out who we are in him, we're going to give in to this weird war that never has any answers. But it promises all the answers. All it does is promise the praise of man. But it doesn't give us what only God can. So like this, this is the culture that we're in. 
that God has placed us for this sovereign moment to be able to be a light of his glory into a lost and dark and hurting world who's confused and looking at something that's wrong and calling it right. What will we do? Will we sit around or will we follow Jesus? So my task, I hope, is to convince us and show us what it means to follow Jesus. Um, the first thing, or, or Revelation chapter 4. Does it have that? This is some freaky stuff. Yeah, there's some really freaky images in Revelation. But listen, they're, they're uh, representative. Most of the time they're representative of something that God wants us to know and understand. Like I'll show you. That 144,000, I believe that represents the church. It represents everybody that God saves between his death and resurrection and when he comes again. So I think it's his church. That It's just a representative number because in Hebrew, numbers are symbolic, and it's like just a lot. That's what in, in a Hebrew culture, they just think, oh, that's just millions upon millions upon millions. That's what's being conveyed. All right, look. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Now, let me help you with a picture of this Lamb. Don't think like little, goofy little, like, it's so cute. And this is a weird picture in, in the in before Revelation. It says that the lamb is standing as slain. So literally, it probably is something like this. A lamb with its neck slit and blood coming down. That's a happy thought, isn't it? Oh, look at that cute. That's not, that's not like a cute lamb. You see the lamb from the side and it turns around. Man, you go, oh, it's blood. No, can't do this. It's freaking images because it's representing who Jesus is. Now, this lamb is standing. Now, I, I, I want to also give you a concept that this could be a ram. A, a ram can all, can, a young ram is also a lamb. So listen, the, the horns that he's got, man, they look cool. In Revelation chapter 4, it says that this lamb has seven horns. So think about like this rope thing coming out just that's really cool i looked up because i'm weird and i was very interested the power of two rams two bighorn rams colliding it's like you see these dudes and they're they like see each other and they rise up and they dig in boom and then after they do that they go like this because yeah you just knocked heads with this other dude of course you are going to be a little dazed in that moment Gotta get my bearings. Gotta move. And look, they back up, they rise up, and do it again. It's crazy. But look, that force that's there is equivalent to getting hit with a baseball bat at the speed of 80 miles an hour. That's serious. And that's the lamb that looks like the devil. He rises up. <laughs> He's got nothing. Devil's got nothing. 
up. So think about that. That's where the lamb, that's the lamb that's standing. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a foot. Now, I don't think that's a literal writing on the foreheads. I think that's a character reference because they look like Jesus. They have their name. They have the father's name. They have an identity that is Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And when they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders, no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for the God, for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Look, I think there's three categories that describe, oh, can we go back to that? Three categories that describe what it means to walk, to follow Jesus. Uh, verse 4, those that have not defiled themselves. This, and, and this is not for their virgins. It doesn't mean that they never got married. I think it's a, a spiritual connection between Jesus and the church. Remember, we have the image of Jesus and his bride. The church is his bride. And so I think this represents this lack, this, not, this decision to not be defiled with what, what the, the culture is saying and what the devil himself tries to bring to us. This is a call for purity. So those who follow Jesus are passionate in their pursuit for purity. And this matters to us. Well, look, Matthew 5. There it is, 5.8. Matthew 5.8, blessed are the pure in heart, for what they shall see God. We want to see Jesus in order to follow where he, we see Jesus in order to be like him. So the blessed are the pure in heart. So this is a heart posture. It's a purity that looks like I, I want to be God's completely. And I don't want to spend my affections on things that will not last. And listen, we, we struggle to reserve our affections and preserve our affections. Because things, even if it's just it's excitement over a video game or excitement over a team, excitement over what could be with a boy or a girl, we're just... We give our affections over. But what we need, what purity calls for is, I, I don't want to give my affections over to something. I want God to have all my affections. So this is a purity in heart, but it's also a purity in life. It looks like something. There's a purity that we, we're, we're, we want to have. We want to have a purity that will last. We want to have a purity where... Um, Sadly, our culture now thinks it's very strange to wait for marriage in order to be physically intimate with one another. For a couple to experience physical intimacy, it's actually so, so soon comparatively. Like, how do you know you want to marry this person unless you know how you are in bed? That's a dumb idea. It's dumb. But yet, we hear about somebody moving in with somebody, we don't have any response whatsoever these days. Your raiments look great, your clothes look great. Rather than have a, a sense of, wait a minute, 
I'm a little heartbroken over this. I'm heartbroken that you're not waiting for God. You're not trusting that God really can satisfy you when you get married. That you need to experiment now to give our affections over. Look, this purity, it looks like something. Uh, my daughter Lane got married. I have five daughters, one son, my only son. When I, yeah. Uh, I, I've asked the Lord to give him all sons when he gets married because he's had to endure a lot of feminism. I mean, femininity. Now listen, uh, my daughter Lane got married a couple years ago, and we at our church in downtown Covington is kind of right across the street from a hotel, and what we did is, is we got, the reception was at the hotel, the ceremony was at the church, and we got uh, the, all the bridal party, Lane and all the bridesmaids and everything got dressed in the suite upstairs that was overlooking the street and everything, really, just a really fun, cool day, except the moment of the day that I'm at my house by myself, because everybody was off doing something. That was miserable. Nobody prepared me for that. Okay, as the father of the bride, yeah, your son will be with the groom, because he's a groomsman, and uh, all your, your wife and all your daughters will be with the bride and live with you now. Feel my groan of that. Here's what happened. What we did, and it was, it was really cool, and we actually have a picture to show it. Uh, we, when it was time to go over, I actually did go. I got Lane and everybody. Everybody was pretty, and it was awesome. And we, we went downstairs, and rather than go to the corner to cross, like wait for the light, wouldn't that be something? The whole bridal party is the bride in her gown. We're just waiting at the light. No, I walked into the street, and I went like this. And everybody was like, sure, we'll stop. Now, here's what Lane did. My daughter Lane, it, she didn't like, she had a nice thick gown. She didn't like just mosey on across the road, right? She didn't want to get her dress dirty. So what she did, she picked it up. And then she walked across the street. Purity looks like that. In our relationship with Jesus, we want to preserve she was getting ready to go meet her groom and see him for their wedding day. And she didn't want any speck, any blemish whatsoever on her dress. She wanted that day to be perfect. That's how we want to be with Jesus. Now, here's the greatest news ever. If you've messed up and you feel dirty, God loves to cleanse you. He loves to just change everything around and make you feel great because of the healing power of his grace and his love that comes in us and restores what we think we destroyed. See, we always think we destroy it, but God is like, oh, no, 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 I got this. I got healing. I got everything for you. So no matter what you've experienced in your life, if there's something that you have messed up, you've looked at something you shouldn't have, you've experienced something you regret, listen to me. Go to Jesus and say, please forgive Restore my affections. Restore the love I have for you. Restore my purity. He does. And he never looks at us the same. Never, ever, ever. 
So we have a category of purity here. We also have a category, uh, oh, oh, because we need to also be pure in our minds as well. Uh, Look at Matthew 5, 27 to 30. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of them, one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it's better you to lose uh, one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. Listen, purity matters to God, and it must I'll wake you up any way I can. It looks like something in our lives. I think I might be yelling, and it's, it's, is there a limiter on this thing? Choke up on the mic. Oh, because I'm, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> I was interfering with the signal. That's what I was doing. Choke the mic. Purity matters to God. And it looks like something in our lives, and it might look like something drastic. And it might look like something drastic to preserve our emotions, to preserve our affections. The culture looks at us and says, don't do anything drastic. Come on, don't punish yourself like that. But we say, no, pick up my dress. I want to be preserved. I want to be beautiful for Jesus when he returns or when I meet him. I want this to be beautiful. I want it to be awesome. So we we have purity as a, a marker of our following Jesus. But it's also in our obedience, too. We follow him. We follow him wherever he goes. And he goes, we have this example in scripture, he goes to the people who everybody else says are the losers. He goes to the people that everybody else says are thrown away and have no future. That's who he goes to. It's a mark of Christianity to be able to go to those people. But look, that doesn't mean you go find somebody on a street corner like that type. It means you... You look for somebody that's sitting alone at a youth meeting. It looks like that that you, you know, that's, what do I say? What do I do? It's, it's tough. I wanted to talk to him, but I don't know. I don't, this guy, you know, we don't do anything. That person's still sitting alone. This is the thing. It's not that you have to go over and, like, create all this conversation. Bring them into your conversation. To get that person, bring them into your friend group. Now, you got you got unbelieving friends at your school, or just selfish friends at your school. Guess what? You bring somebody else into that group, they're like, they're acting all defiled, right? No, we're going to see people like Jesus sees people. We're going to see him like Jesus sees people, so we can be like Jesus to them. So we follow him wherever he goes. Uh, Matthew six. Verses 19 and 20. I'm going to the Sermon on the Mount because we, Jesus already said this stuff. He's like, here, this is how you follow me. Matthew 6, 19 and 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where neither thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says, look, focus on eternity because that's our destination. Our address here on this earth is temporary. We have an eternal address, a permanent address that's waiting for us. So don't latch on to things so much right here. Live, live looking for eternity. And then with this, uh, oh, sorry, I was thinking Revelation was still up there. Can you go back to that, verses 
the last part. There we go. And from their mouths, no lie was found, for they are blameless. Uh, Whenever I see this word blameless in Scripture, I think of righteousness. And this righteousness and this blamelessness is not something that God says, you've been such a good boy and girl. Here, righteousness. That's how we live, though. We live as if, oh, man, I just did something wrong. God's mad at me. I'm not going to get righteousness today. That's not what Scripture describes to us in our relationship with him. What he describes is you, when you trust Christ for salvation and the Spirit of God lives inside of you and you repent of your pride and your rebellion and you're, you're just wanting to do things your own way, Listen, when that happens and that exchange takes place and God takes that hard stone, uh, hard heart of love, hard heart of stone out, got to get my image correct, and the heart of love drawn in, when his spirit's there, he says this, you're righteous. We are counted righteous. That means this, everything that Jesus did in his life, everything good that Jesus did in his life, which was how many things? All of them. He, everything he did was, was right. That means everything right that he did, it counts in our column of everything that we do right. What? We don't make transactions like that in our lives, but that's the transaction that God makes. That's the exchange that he, he makes with us. And so when he says you are righteous, remember Abraham believed God and God counted to him, counted, put on him righteousness. God puts righteousness on us. And it makes us blameless before him. A lot of us walk around with a lot of blame. Maybe your own parents made you feel miserable when you were in your heart. Maybe it adds on to the feeling that you have in your own heart. Like, I must have been neglecting you. And you think, I don't even want to confess this time because it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. So I'm just going to give in. Give up, give in. But maybe friends said something inconsiderate or unkind to a friend or a sibling, and they're blaming you, holding it over your head. You know, this is the hardest thing for Christians to tackle. It's the hardest thing in my own Christian life to tackle. Still trying to work on it. The only person that can blame us is God, and when he counts us as righteous, he takes the blame away. God will never blame you for anything. He will never say to you, shame on you. The devil himself always wants to say, shame on you. God, you love God? Come on. What, this is like the 18th time. Yeah, you're really sincere. You're really sorry this time, right? You don't even have to have a a human voice saying it to you. You got the spiritual voice of the devil just going, man, I'm worthless. I'm not valuable. I got nothing. We walk around. Listen, we walk around with the shame, and we have no idea what to do with it. Rather than hear the roar of the lion, the roar of that lion who judges and has already judged Jesus, so we won't be judged. He has already put our shame on Jesus, who hung naked on a cross. Exposed. Just like Adam and Eve were exposed and they, they wanted to hide it. They were hiding their shame. Jesus was exposed in our shame. So we wouldn't have to be enslaved to that shame anymore. You don't have to be enslaved 
to shame. So next time, you know how you hear the, the distinction between the devil's voice and God's voice? It's that pit in your stomach that you feel. When the devil speaks, he doesn't ever give a promise. He might sound like something God would say, but he never gives a promise to it. The devil sounds like this. You're a loser. You messed up again. No hope. You can't trust God. See, the devil sounds like, here's what God sounds like. You messed up again. But I love you. You messed up again. But Jesus picked up. So I don't see it anymore. You messed up again. You're not a loser. Sound different? We have to learn to get the, the promises out of Scripture so we're more aware of what God did for us rather than we feel like we have to do for ourselves in the Christian life. But look, there's also no, no lie is found in their mouths. This blamelessness, where your heart, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus also said what comes out of our mouths starts in our hearts, right? Remember that? So here, this blamelessness should sound like something. It sounds like no lies. That means stop lying about everything. Why do we have such a hard time with this? When I was a kid, I had fun lying about everything. I'd make up stories for people that I met for no reason. I, I mean now, I was just trying to gain acceptance for people, but I'd lie to my parents, lie to my brothers, I lied to just everything, just lie. Just because I got, I got good at it, and it was my, I guess it was my fun thing, so I would just lie. Now, the tragic thing is that today I can lie, and people don't recognize the difference. Because <laughs> I got so good at it when I was a kid. But what's, rest what's restraining me is this. I want to talk like Jesus. I want to imitate Jesus. Now, crucial distinction. Imitating Jesus doesn't mean we mimic him. It means we get him on the inside, we see his glory, and we become what we behold. We become his glory, and we live that out. But it means that our mouths say things like Jesus did. Look, no insults. No exaggerations. No proud comments. No derogatory comments. No tearing people down with our words, but we learn how to build people up. And I know, I know. The hardest place to do that is in your house. The hardest place is in our own homes. The place that we should feel the most comfortable saying things, sometimes we just think, I don't know how to say this. I'm afraid to say it. If it's confessing something, or we just dog everybody, we're critical. Throwing insults at siblings, just lobbing them out. Lobbing insults, one after another. Critical. Jesus says this. If you follow me, you'll learn I don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. I, I, I like being around sarcastic people. I really do. My wife, uh, my oldest daughter, and my youngest daughter, uh, who's right there, they are the most sarcastic people that I know. And I love being around them, and they make me laugh all the time. They, they are sarcastic with me, but here's what I've learned about myself. I'm not a sarcastic person. And so when I try to be sarcastic, it just comes flat out mean. 
Like, I'll say something like, huh, and they go, whoa, whoa, that hurts. I was trying to be funny. I was trying to, look, that's not me. I'm goofy funny. I'm not sarcastic funny. So, look, know your role, all right? <laughs> know which one you are to be able to go. My wife can cut somebody down, and they're like, oh, Kathy, come on. That's not that bad. I would do the same thing. They're like, oh, man, I have to reconsider everything. Maybe I just need to find a rock and die. I got to find that rock and just die. I don't belong in the world. Yeah. Keep yourself pure. Obey Jesus. Lay up treasure him. Because when you, when you follow him, you treasure him. And listen, speak his words of life over people. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, yeah, amen. Come on, come on, give me one more time. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this moment that we have. I thank you for the goodness that you have deposited into our lives, the grace that has been sown into our hearts this week. God, we do ask for lasting fruit. God, I ask for every student in here to have a resolve, not because they have this self-determination, but it's because you are God. You are the lion and the lamb. You are bold, and you are strong, and you are good, and you are worthy of our lives. God, may that be our our vision of you becomes the strength in which we walk. But Lord, I do ask for courage. I ask for strength as these students uh, begin a new school year. Whatever their context, Father, in their homes, I pray that life would be very different. Not waiting around for something to change, but, but being that change because we want to be like Jesus in everything we say and do. And so, Lord, we ask for grace in our walk. God, we, we ask uh, for those who are uh, for school, those who are attending school. Father, we ask for relationships uh, to be different because we're different. And, and oh God, I ask that the fear of man would just fall off so we can, we can speak the truth in love when, when appropriate, where appropriate. And God, give us words. You are a God who speaks. Give us words to be able to convey what we're thinking and feeling and, and calling something truth. Like there's, there's no clothes on that person. That's a false identity to follow after. That's a lie that we're going after. God, give wisdom and discernment for that. God, I ask ultimately that we would have our identity in you. God, those who are, I pray for the, the, those who are homeschooled. Um, God, heaven, we know, our family knows the, the stress sometimes of being around the same people all the time. God, give grace for that as well so we can speak words of life and not be critical. So we can be spirit-empowered and spirit-led in that moment as well. But God, ultimately, we ask that our identity would be in you so, and we would feel it so much that we would feel the roar of heaven over us, saying to us every day, I love you. And I pray that would settle our hearts in each moment. We want to follow you, Jesus. 
We want to follow you. Thank you for the vision that we have. We're honored in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Awesome. Thank you.